In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Adventure awaits on this episode of Notably Disney as fellow podcaster and friend of mine, Trent Vactor, joins me to discuss Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. We provide a review of the movie, as well as go a little bit into the score and the future of the franchise, which is perhaps more uncertain given the seeming failure of the film from a box office and critical acclaim standpoint. Uh, so just be aware that there are spoilers regarding many plot points. So if you have not seen the movie and don't want your uh, your experience to be tainted by some prior uh, knowledge, definitely skip out on this episode. But otherwise, I hope you enjoy our conversation uh, as we make sense of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Enjoy. This summer brought the return of one of film's classic adventure heroes back to the big screen. Although Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny's fate may have been uh, via its subpar box office, its score slated to be the last or one of the last of master composer John Williams will leave you as excited as the ticker tape parade scene from the latest installment. Uh, And I would say the film is actually stellar in many respects too today on notably disney fellow podcaster and returning guest he was the very first guest of notably disney i think trent vactor you joined me last as we discussed uh, star wars the rise of skywalker three years ago trent joins me to review the film its score indy's presence in the disney theme parks and discuss the future of the franchise welcome back trent Thank you very much. I like that I'm the Lucasfilm guy. Uh, every time that there's a Lucasfilm uh, movie, I'm the one that you bring on. So I like this, Brett. Yeah, thank you very much. We all have our niches, and that's yeah. uh, one of them. Plus Marvel. <laughs> so I guess yes. we need to figure out a Marvel opportunity in the, in the near future. Yes. Um, Trent, first off, can you just quickly uh, introduce yourself? Listeners don't remember you in terms of the the podcast spaces that you belong to and your your fan culture 
uh, I don't know, your, your, the, the things that you are most a fan of, uh, you're an aficionado of many things, but if you could offer a quick intro. Yes, actually, I'm, uh, I have a new podcast since the last time I was here. It's called The Vactorverse. It's kind of completely my brand, and it's basically focusing on comic book and Star Wars. So anything that is coming out, whether it's a TV show, a comic book, an audio book, you know, whatever it is that kind of comes down the pipeline, I'm trying to review it on my podcast slash YouTube channel. So I'm putting out the content in both formats and uh, I am delighted to be back. Fantastic. Well, let's get right to it with Indiana Jones. So this you know, as I'm a podcaster, I'm always thinking about content that I'm going to be developing down the line and oftentimes connected to events or experiences that are happening within the world of Disney. And certainly the release of Indiana Jones was one that I was anticipating for quite a while, much like many a fan. And I realized, well, I haven't had an episode of the podcast centered around this brand that has existed for 42 years. Um, and notably, Disney has been going around going along for four years, so might as well uh, have some space for it. What's your familiarity with or connection to the Indiana Jones franchise? It's always been on the outside of my uh, geek culture world. Um, I'm, as you discussed, huge into Marvel, superheroes, and Disney. And I've always known about Indiana Jones. It's always been in, in the background of my life. But I've never really focused on it like I have with, let's say, Back to the Future, where it was a touchstone of my youth and growing up. Indiana Jones, for me, actually, a lot of it was uh, the ride at Disney. And also, there was a video game in the 80s that was a simulation of Indiana Jones. You're an adventure. You're running around with a fedora and a whip. And my memories, my... um, my canon events or core moments that I always think about when growing up are video games and uh, going to a local arcade. And so that Indiana Jones style game was a huge impact on me. And I, I would play it multiple times, even more so than, than watching the films. But um, I've always been an admirer of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. So them coming together and collaborating on a specific franchise was always a big thing, you know, to me in my world. Um, but I think even the the thing that interests me most about the movies is the behind the scenes of how they came together, how they were made, and that includes the music. Um, John Williams is my favorite composer of all time, so listening to his thoughts on the franchise and on the character of Indiana Jones is always fascinating for me. So that's kind of been my experience with the films. I've always, I've watched them as they've come out, but I haven't focused on them like I have with Star Wars or with the Marvel movies where I'm watching them, you know, on a, on a repeat loop. Um, Indiana Jones, it was kind of like, oh, I watched it. All right. I know it exists. Now now, uh, I'll move on to the next thing. Yeah, I would say I probably fall into the same camp as you, that it's always been in the background, but not as central as uh, these more salient brands that are part of the Disney umbrella. Now, you mentioned John Williams. You had the amazing opportunity several years back to watch him uh, conduct 
the orchestra at uh, at the Hollywood Bowl. That was one of my favorite experiences. Actually, I was just thinking about it the other day, and to to go through his history and his filmography, it was one of the the biggest treats of my life. And and he performed all of the notable John Williams familiar scores. Um, he did Indiana Jones, and it was funny because he has so many. It got to the point where it had been, I think, like two hours into the show, and he, people were like, "Encore, encore!" There's still ones you haven't played yet. But um, unfortunately, for for that specific night that we went, it was kind of hot in um, LA, and and he kind of said, "Sorry, I'm not feeling too well, so no encore tonight." Um, so we didn't get, I think E.T. was the biggest one that we did not li- get that night, but it, he had all of my favorites, you know, Star Wars, Superman, and uh, Harry Potter. I was over the moon uh, to experience that. Very cool. Very jealous. I He recently performed again um, this summer and while in his 90s and, and still delivering but we'll we'll shift back to John Williams in a, a moment. Let's talk about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, the the film itself, the story, um, the the notion of kind of getting back into that world, albeit it's a different world for our titular hero in that it's now 1969, and he's uh, he's at uh, essentially the end of his career, retiring at the beginning of the film, and wondering what his next chapter might be. Uh, albeit the film begins with a flashback and some nice uh, uh, illustrations of what technology can accomplish and having a, a, a younger digital version of Harrison Ford. Um, what you know, thinking about the film in its entirety um, and, and maybe pulling out some specific scenes or aspects, what were your thoughts of the story and ultimately how the film was assembled? I I'll throw in my thoughts along the way too. Oh, excellent. Yes. I had a lot of fun with Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And I think more so than the last movie, which was Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I think this one to me felt like a good time at the cinema. Um, I I didn't think that anything stood out to me as being spectacular, but I thought it was a solid film, a solid. It, it's funny because there are a lot of similarities with a lot of the other blockbusters that have come out this year in 2023. Um, There's a lot of locations and chase sequences, the overall length of the film. Like there's a lot of similarities uh, between mission impossible and fast 10 that came out this year. So I I thought it was interesting. A lot of the um, connections that when you make a film, you know, you're kind of isolated and you're, off on your own but all of these kind of movie studios came together at the same time and just kind of a a corporate synergy so to speak but i thought this one was a lot of fun and what you talked about with the digital technology and the de-aging from that very first trailer that they released where they pulled the bag off his head and the light shone on his face i said whoa because that to me has been a technology that I have always been able to see the seams and it hasn't quite lived up to um, the the promise of CG and, and digital. But I thought with this one, they have reached a level of um, 
very convincing, I should say, a very convincing level on the de-aging. The only thing that took me out of it was his voice. And I could hear an 80-year-old Harrison Ford, even though it's funny, I was watching a, a little featurette that Disney put out, Lucasfilm, on their YouTube channel. And he, in that featurette, he was uh, specifically said, well, I'm an actor and I can raise my voice up and sound younger. And I said, well, you didn't do that in the movie because you sounded very old to me, did not sound like the uh, 1980s Harrison Ford. And so as far as the digital technology of the de-aging, I thought it was the best we've seen so far up to this point. And I know the technology is only going to get better, but there's some interesting things psychologically, philosophically, I should say, about an older actor playing themselves in a younger fashion. And, and we've seen that before in Star Wars with Rogue One. And with The Flash earlier this year, there was um, actors who are, who've passed away that a digital representation of them was shown and a younger version of themselves. So I, I think there's a lot of interesting things with The Dial of Destiny. And then also on top of that, I always found it interesting that each Indiana Jones movie was in a, uh, a separate time period and they've all been inspired by, and this is what I was talking about earlier with, I love the behind the scenes and the production and the making of these movies, even more so than the actual product and watching the movies. I love thinking about, oh, okay, this is supposed to be an adventure film from the 1930s. This is supposed to be, with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, a 1950s B-movie, sci-fi movie. And then with this one, with Dial of Destiny, the time frame that we get is late 60s. And what does that mean for our beloved Dr. Jones and for the world? And so I, I love time um, looking at uh, different aspects of time throughout movies, movie history. And so each one of these Indiana Jones films, it's been a different take and a different ride. So I also um, liked that aspect of Dial of Destiny. Those were all really astute, um, thoughtful observations. You know, you mentioned the de-aging. What comes to mind for me as the first demonstration of it was back in 2010 with Tron Legacy and the Ooh, younger Jeff yes, Bridges yes, yes. and people really critiquing that at the time. Yes. Mind you, I think that could probably be given a bit more grace for the scenes in the grid because it's a computer world. But of right. course, the film begins with supposedly this Jeff Bridges uh, Flynn character from the 80s. And it, that looked a little bit uh, off, but you still have to commend you know, the intent uh, and certainly now the execution is a lot stronger uh, 13 years later. Oh, yeah. It's just mind-blowing the, the the leaps and bounds that we're taking, you know, every couple years. And once it gets to every couple decades, it's like, man, it just – my son, who is two years old right now, these effects are going to look dated to him. You know, when he's coming of age, it's I, I just can't imagine the level of – uh, digital technology and and computer generated images at that point and I and I think like I said I think it's a very interesting thing about nostalgia and liking things of the past and Indiana Jones is such an iconic 
character and, and Harrison Ford, iconic actor. But at a certain point, they just age out of things, out of roles, out of um, their their acting abilities and different things. And so what happens when we can use computer technology as a tool to kind of turn the clock back a little bit and give these actors a little bit more time? And I, even without the de-aging, I find it interesting that this current time period in our culture, there is so much um, nostalgia, not bait, but it's it's become to a point where our action heroes, and you think about Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Harrison Ford, our generation almost doesn't want to let go. Tom Cruise with Mission Impossible. We don't want to let go of our uh, beloved icons, whereas I think about my parents' generation, it was like, let's say, Sean Connery. Okay, he aged out of James Bond, he aged out of the role, and... He just couldn't do that anymore. He wasn't doing James Bond when he was 80 years old. So I, I find that fascinating just from that standpoint of all of these older action heroes, and we still want to hold on to the past. And and even with the franchises, you know, bringing back franchises that we liked as kids and either rebooting them or refreshing them or, you know, restarting them or in the case of Indiana Jones, continuing them. I just find that very fascinating that we, that has never been um, a thing before in the past. You think about the twenties, the thirties, the forties, those type of things did not exist where people were trying to get back, you know, what they, I think their past or their nostalgia, um, what they loved about their childhood. So I think it's just a very interesting time that we're living in right now. Well, it's also probably a commentary on our culture, one that is very social media heavy. Consequently, there's uh, greater opportunities for spreading you know, your fervor for something from the past and, and finding those subcultures and folks who, who share those same passions and fandom and what that looks like in the digital age. But it also makes me think of how we also live in much more of a uh, a creator-heavy world where people are designing products reflective of their favorite brands like on mm. you know whether it be something on etsy or um, right. other other creative marketplaces and and using that as a as a mechanism to share what they love and find other people who can appreciate that um but yeah that is a good point because you know we're you know you're, you're a little bit older than me but you know folks in our 30s early 40s and in their 20s are are wanting to embrace that part of our past and carry that out carry that to the next generation or for our own entertainment and and we have more means to be able to do that particularly with streaming and having mm -hmm. ready access uh to consuming that content as frequently as we want and sharing it with the people we want to which so. i also i find that fascinating as well because we're in a time like you said where we're able to share so much and it's instantaneous. And even from the movies coming out from the, the you know, transitioning from the theater to digital, or even someday day and date, you know, sometimes these releases are coming out now at the same time. Whereas when I was growing up, it was, Oh, if you saw a movie in the theater, it wasn't coming out on home video for a year. It wasn't coming out for um, nine months. You know, it was, it was a long time. 
And so that aspect of um, having things on demand, having everything at your fingertips is interesting to me. But then at the same time, we're seeing so many companies remove their content from streaming and then it's just gone. Um, I was just talking, actually, I was just recording a podcast yesterday and my guest was talking about um, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and they were saying, yeah, I was watching it on Hulu. I was in the middle of watching it and Hulu just took it off, just completely wiped the entire series off of Hulu. And I was like, oh yeah, that's not great because you're, I guess the promise of streaming and, and kind of what you think of as the the con contract that you're signing with the companies is, hey, I'm going to pay a monthly fee and I'm going to get access to all your content forever. I'm going to have it at my fingertips. And we've seen this with Max and Warner Brothers removing all of these things, Netflix the same way. And so I'm also wondering, we're in such a great period right now, but in the future, what is going to be available? Is my son going to be able to see all of these TV shows that I watched, or are those things just going to be wiped away? And, and the physical media is the only thing that we have left over. So I, I just find that to be fascinating. Well, and not to get too far astray, but but talking about the role of streaming, Disney put on the Indiana Jones films on Disney Plus maybe a month before its release, and otherwise there was no Indiana Jones content on the platform mm -hmm. one might wonder could its lack of presence on there since the platform launched three and a half years ago could that have worked against it in terms of brand awareness and familiarity like is that just mm -hmm. relying on older generations who grew up on the earlier films or folks who have the physical media because right. of that lack of engagement whereas on the flip side you know uh more more recent examples but you know all the star wars films had been available and mm -hmm. obviously that's a much huger fan base but nonetheless that easy access right yeah and it's yeah it's just so many interesting things that are that are going on right now in our, our world so as far as uh the film um <laughs> i realize we're having this much more fascinating commentary <laughs> on the state of streaming and um, and fan fandom in the 21st century or the 2020s, really. So what about the film did you most enjoy, um, whether it be favorite scenes or characters? And, and I'll, I'll throw in some thoughts, too. I realize I'm, <laughs> I'm not sharing as much of my own uh, two cents, but I, 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 for one, thought the, the film was thoroughly entertaining, and I'll, I'll share some reasons why, but I'm first curious on, on why you may have enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, for me, it was the sense of fun that I got from the action, and it was a nonstop ride for me. And and it, it was in line with I actually went back and and um, just kind of skimmed through once I watched the movie. I, I came home and on Disney Plus, I was just kind of skimming through number one to see how young Harrison Ford looked, and then number two to see how it uh, kind of the other ones held up to this one, and. It was like, oh, yeah, they kind of hit all of the same beats that all the classic Indiana Jones things hit. And then also him as a hero being fallible and not being a Superman. And I, you also see this in uh, Jackie Chan movies where he is relatable because he's not a superhero. He gets hurt. He's not like, like, for example, 
in contrast, Bruce Lee is a superhero. He's like a Superman. He punches you and doesn't get hurt. Whereas Jackie Chan, he'll punch you and they'll go, ow, 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 ow. And it, and it hurt his hand that he punched you. So Indiana Jones, I think, is, is also along those lines of he's not perfect. And, and what's interesting about John Williams' score on the originals is there are points in the music where he's going along with the action uh, there's a term for it uh, called mickey mousing where it's actually in in step with the action on what's happening and so i found it fascinating that john williams had these um ups and downs where when when harrison ford stumbled or when indiana jones stumbled you didn't get the full raiders march it wasn't like um in all its glory it was kind of like Da, 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 da. and then it like it went it uh phased out a little bit it, it changed and uh every time something bad happened to him or he did unexpected happened where he didn't get the treasure he didn't get what he was looking for and then there's kind of a tension and release where he does at the end win the day and, and there's a triumphant raiders march um so i found that um i, I always love john williams like i said he's my favorite composer of all time, but um, in this Dial of Destiny, it really was the action of Harrison Ford trying to get the thing. Like, okay, I we got to go over there and fly to get this thing. Okay, now we got to go over here and get this thing. You know, the MacGuffin of all right, we got to get this. This it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. But I just had a lot of fun with Harrison Ford's charisma as I do in every movie that he's in, whether it's Blade Runner, Star Wars or Indiana Jones, it's just nice to spend time with Harrison Ford. And then also I got um, a lot of vulnerability from Harrison Ford and him. Uh, are we in uh, spoilers for the, the story? Yep. Uh, go on, okay. go, go for it. Yep. Him losing his son in the Vietnam war and his strain and his reaction of that, it really hit me. And especially now that I'm a parent, and I think I've talked to you before about this movies and stories hit me differently when they're about fathers and sons. And it's funny, as much as I didn't like, but Williams in the last movie, Shia LaBeouf's character, it felt kind of weird that he wasn't in this. And Indiana Jones is a character that I've, you know, we followed and you're at the end of his life and it's kind of, you feel sad for him that he's lost pretty much everything at the beginning of the movie. It opens up with, he's lost his marriage. He's lost his son. And even his career is kind of just sputtering out. And I thought that was hilarious. The contrast between the opening shot of him as a professor in this movie, in Dial of Destiny, it's everyone is bored. Nobody did the homework. Nobody's paying attention. Nobody really cares. Everybody's kind of thinking about going to the moon and archaeology is in the past and like it's boring versus his first scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. All of the girls are swooning over him and you know, they're writing I love you on their eyelids and it, it's the most fascinating thing. He's in a three-piece suit, like the nicest looking thing. And it's like, this looks like I want to be a professor. I want to be an archaeologist. Um, so I love that contrast of he was at, you know, 
the highest high, and then now we see him at the lowest low um, for an archaeologist. So I, I thought that was great. I can say I have people swooning over me as a professor, ah! but uh, at least not that I know of, but that's for another conversation. <laughs> uh, what, what, you know, the film has, and I've, I've read some reviews and, and listened to some commentary, but I think the film is an interesting statement on ageism in society mm -hmm, because, mm -hmm. you, you know, you reference how people are so disenchanted with where, you know, with, with the content he's relaying and, and also that in concert with how he's at the twilight of, of his career and literally it's his retirement party right after class and and there's this like almost sadness for mm -hmm. the life he has not not only the the personal situation that you mentioned but the professional situation and so this there's this sadness that he feels for himself and he's kind of down on his luck and that being such a paradox to how the rest of the world seems to be thriving because here we're reaching new frontiers um and and I and I find it just to be a fascinating connection with the the villain character here by Mads Mikkelsen because now he's forever typecast and that type of role, but um, but Voller, like you know, he, the notion is you know he's this you know former Nazi who's working with the U.S. government. That's not very far off from what was happening in re the real world of of the time. Even um, Werner von Braun, who worked or uh, worked for NASA and worked with. Uh, Disney to some extent um, in the in the 50s and 60s. There's a lot of these interesting parallels to what um, actually transpired in, in real life. But you see these like this just dichotomy between the horrors of World War II, which is how this film begins, and then what almost 25 years later and, and man is heading to the moon. And uh, so that, again, that paradox between optimism and uh, disappointment and and regret mm -hmm. um yeah i found that to be fascinating throughout the film because you see that also in play between uh indy and then the hellenic character who's you know a generation plus younger and how you know there's that excitement that she feels but it's it's for all the the wrong reasons it's all motivated mm -hmm. by money whereas for yes. for indy it, it wasn't money it was for the the glory of of discovery Right, and that glory yes. of discovery is what's all about people's desire and getting up to the moon. So there's, I, I I think they could have explored that in even more depth, but I love the symbolism that was kind of in the background throughout. Right, yeah, I, I also enjoyed that, and um, I also one of the things that I enjoy the most about uh, superhero comic books, the, the one of my favorite superpowers is super intelligence any character that is the smartest character in the room if you think about tony stark or if you think about um bruce wayne batman like people that are just highly intelligent even peter parker spider-man it, it's something that i think it's it, i think it is one of those things like a power fantasy of like hey i want to be that smart i want to be the smartest guy in the room but with with this one specifically with in, how it ties to indiana jones i love their archaeological iq both indy indy and helena they both have that you know they're experts in their field and and they can decipher any they can um solve any puzzle any riddle um so i that aspect of the film i i enjoyed anytime there was something that they had to solve and they were ahead of all the other characters that was always fun to me so that 
I got a lot of that um, from this one. And you know what? I also was thinking about the, like I, said, I mentioned the, the Disney ride earlier and watching this, I felt like I was on that ride again. That's, that's kind of how I felt. I think that was intentional. They want you to kind of feel like it's a thrill ride. And so I think that was conveyed um, exceptionally. And that's what, when I left the theater, I was like, you know what? That was a fun ride. That was a fun trip. Absolutely. One thing that I wanted to mention, it's not directly connected to what we've discussed, but I'm always interested in how brands that aren't necessarily the traditional Disney label fit within the Disney landscape. And with the, mm-hmm. the recent Lucasfilm releases, it would just start with the Lucasfilm logo. Here we have a, Dis- a very, very abbreviated Disney Castle logo, the Paramount logo, because it's an association with its former distributor, as well as Lucasfilm. And it even, and then the title card would say Disney and Lucasfilm present an association of Paramount. It was interesting to see Disney use the labeling, albeit briefly in that context, because that's totally counter to how they've released their non-Disney animation or non-Disney live action films. The the Marvel films, it's just the Marvel Studios logo. So I, I just wanted to mention that to to listeners to when you if you watch the movie for the first time or watch it again pay attention to that because it's it's you know it's brief and you'll pretty much miss it but it's an interesting way of embedding disney in a context where you i wouldn't have expected it i was shocked because of how they've treated star wars and marvel right yeah yeah that's that is um a, a very interesting thing to um when you're when when you're watching it and like i said again it's the behind the scenes of these different corporations and different companies and and everybody's kind of got their hands in in the pie um but you know one thing that i was really disappointed about in this film was the cia agents i don't know if they ever even gave them a distinction um the ones that mads mickelson was working with I wanted to know more about them and I felt like there was, there was something there, but it, it was left on the cutting room floor. Um, and especially the, um, the, the, the female agent and I'm blanking on her name, but she, she had a lot of charisma and felt like there was something else. I, I felt like the director shot something else or there was more to her story. And even at two hours and 30 minutes, we, I felt like, they just said, okay, this movie's going too long. We got to cut all of her backstory. I I hope on the DVD or on um, someplace else we get to see more of her story because I just felt like she had potential to be a character that I was really interested in. And they just kind of cut her short at the end. It was her setup and build up. It felt like a strong character. And then they just kind of cut her out and and uh, removed her from the story. And I just was very disappointed by that. I, I agree with you there. Um, I think there were some missed opportunities. And I think there's an interesting, like, larger reflection on on Disney and casting and storytelling. Disney's been much more intentional um, the past five years or so in having films be much more attentive to telling, um, I think, very rich stories and stories that are that really reflect um, diversity across a variety of different realms. 
And really, the, the few characters of color in this film get so little screen time. You mentioned the CIA character there, Antonio Banderas. He's in it for like five minutes. That and mind you, he's billed as like the third person in the cast. I was so bummed about that. Um, and so, mind you, the film is set, you know, in the late 60s. And, and you know, what certainly when, when these issues about race relations uh were were more present and not that the film is a commentary about racism in America or, or the world, but it, it's just fascinating that increasingly Disney has been casting uh films with with uh you know racial diversity with gender equity more uh more at the forefront, but then for some of these roles to be relegated in a way and for there to not be these backstories like you know, interpret it how you want, but it, it felt very disappointing, especially when mm. I felt like the Antonio Banderas character and the CIA operative who you mentioned, they it seemed like there was a lot of really interesting context there, but we didn't get to fully explore that. And that's where I feel like the film was engaging in a lot of telling but not showing. So like kind mm. of like even the the marriage falling apart between him and Marion and right. and Mutt being killed. Like not that we needed additional footage to see all of it following but you could even you could have even had like a two two or three minute montage leading up to the present day or maybe he's even having a dream like remember we see right. him in the present day right when he's waking up like to have given that visual context even if it was like i don't know a silhouette or or something so you didn't have to get bring shia back but like something and i feel like that was the film's problem there was a lot of telling of things but not as much mm -hmm. showing at least in terms of these key character motivations right. um but i did yeah. love the opening set in uh world war ii and and, and that as a huge contrast to the present day but i i just you know you're mentioning things that are sparking further thoughts and and i just feel like there's there's a lot of intentionality, I think, in the decisions they made, but but I think there's also this same notion of disappointment and missed opportunities. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's and that's what I was saying about nothing stood out as spectacular to me, um, but it just felt like overall it was a solid action movie, um, but it didn't answer. The question that when I went into this, when I heard they were doing another Indiana Jones movie, the question in my mind was, what is an important enough story to bring him back? And even with Crystal Skull, I thought that was not important enough to bring him back. You're never going to beat the ending of uh, the third movie where they literally ride off into the sunset. That was, that might be the best ending of all time of any franchise I can think of, of any trilogy I can think of just them going off into the sunset. And like I said, crystal skull didn't answer it at the end of crystal skull. It was kind of like, well, he's, he's going off um, and he's passing on the torch to mutt. Oh, wait, wait, no, he's not. He's bringing it back. This one kind of had the same sort of ending where it was like, oh, that's a nice, you see a shot of his hat and then the a circle closing on the hat. Oh, wait, he's grabbing the hat again. So he's going to put it back on. He's going on another adventure. So to me, it just, it never answered that question. Like I said, of, of why, why is this story being told? And I think 
like I said, with a lot of these nostalgia, for be, for lack of a better term, nostalgia bait movies where you're bringing back an aging hero. I've a lot of times I don't get the reasoning of I like Rocky. Rocky's a, another great example of this where it was like, okay, Rocky four, okay, Rocky five, okay, Rocky six. Like, what is the reason that, that we need to see this character age? at these certain moments. And that also just sparked another thing in, in my mind. Um, I had a revelation in, I want to say like 2007 and I was watching a movie. I can't even remember what movie it was, but I came across the notion of, you know, what makes movies for um, a large part interesting. Is there a, a snapshot of a character's life there? And what I mean by snapshot is, they are a specific segment of their life and it's not their entire life. We're not seeing every time they went to the bathroom. We're not seeing every time they went, uh, got up in the middle of the night and drank some milk. You know, the, the boring moments of people's lives are not necessarily documented um, unless it's for a specific purpose in a montage or something in a movie. But for me, I don't need to know every year of a character's life. And with these movies, like I said, where they keep bringing back certain action heroes, number one, the whole, an action hero is a young man's game. And there's a specific reason for that because they're able to move a lot more athletically and a lot more energetically. And so that's in the past, the reason why we haven't had aging action stars because they didn't look as good. And I will say Harrison Ford, never looked good to me running whether it was in han solo in in uh, star wars him running away from stormtroopers whether it was in the first raiders movie where at the opening of the movie he's running away from the natives he he's never looked athletic to me so in this movie when i saw him running and i saw him doing things i was like yeah that's kind of how he's always looked to me it wasn't um a huge leap for, for uh from that standpoint but I don't necessarily need to see every year of Indiana Jones life. I'm okay with just seeing a snapshot, a little piece, a couple years, and then it's over. That's the end of his story. And let's get in some new characters. Let's get in some fresh blood. Um, so that was what I was thinking as I walked out of the theater. I was like, why did that movie exist? What was the point of this movie? Yes, I had fun, but at the end of the day, it never answered the question to me of, of why he needed to come out of retirement. I think you're right. And in the same breath, I feel like the point of the film is chasing youth and it's chasing time because that's what the dial of destiny represents. It's the notion of going back and rewriting history. And for Indy, this, this point in his life is about trying to, in a sense, relive his youth, but more than that, trying to escape the reality that he finds himself trapped in. Right. So, and we, yeah, we didn't even mention that. I, I, I think like you uh, am a time travel fan and I love thinking about Indiana Jones as an archeologist and spending his whole life as studying history in this movie almost becoming history, almost becoming part of history 
when that moment was happening in the movie, yes. I was like, whoa, this might be a really good ending of him, like I said, him becoming what he's been chasing after his whole life and him saying, leave me. I want to die here. That to me was like, oh man, that is a really interesting concept of what would happen if I, I would have been okay if they had just left him in the past. And I also, at the same time, I was thinking the same thing that um, the Helena character was thinking like, well, wait a minute, if he stays there, then he's going to ruin the future. He's going to mess up the timeline. So I was kind of going both ways. I was like, man, I could see the ending here, but oh no, no, we got to get back to the, to the present, uh, present day. So I actually really liked that aspect of the movie, the time travel um, notion of it. And every Indiana Jones has a sci-fi um, artifact that Indy doesn't believe in. And at the end of the movie, we find out, oh, yes, that is a real that it does have supernatural powers. And so I thought this the Dial of Destiny thing was perfect that it. Oh, yeah, it is a time travel device it is something um so i i thought that was interesting i thought all that stuff was was really good yeah it was implemented very well and you'll probably i don't know if you'll hear this on on your end there's an ice cream truck in the background so <laughs> i don't know if that's supposed to transport me to an era where that was very popular but it's going to come through i'm gonna <laughs> yeah it's right next to my apartment there you go Nice. So I don't know if Indiana Jones consumed ice cream, but that that's how we'll make it a tie-in to now. Yeah. I I loved the final act um, in terms of that moment where they all realize exactly where they're situated uh, in the sky. And my gosh, that for me was just an epic moment. And I thought it was executed great. I love the symbolism had he stayed, but even just him vocalizing that intent, it was it was so. Um, full circle in so many ways, even though that's not where he ultimately uh, spent the end of his period. And we don't know ultimately what that is unless there's a, a sixth film, but uh, nonetheless, uh, really well done. I I was enchanted as a viewer. That moment where they're flying up to the portal was, I think, and I've heard this from, a number of different uh, podcasters and reviews. That was the moment that I stood up in my seat and I said, I don't know what's going to happen. Where a lot of the previous stuff, it was like, okay, we know the chase. We know what's going to happen. We know that this is like a, a, a thing, a tried and true formula. That, like I said, the Indiana Jones formula are kind of certain beats that, that they hit. And that was the point where I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if it was real, if the supernatural elements were actually going to come true. And then even if they did, what time period were they going to end up in? So that, I think that was my favorite moment of the movie was the uncertainty of flying towards the portal. And at the last second, indeed, like I said, his kind of archeological expertise, a continental drift, continental drift seeing Mads Mikkelsen doubt himself start the self-doubt start to creep in because he was a hundred percent confident at first and then slowly 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 ah, no, 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 turn around 
I, I loved that sequence as well. And when they flew through the portal, when they, when you, when you realize where they were and um, it, they, they telegraphed it a little bit when they were in the tomb and they, they, they found the watch and they saw the propellers and I was like, Oh, okay. I, I'm starting to piece together what's going to happen here. But like I said, that moment of going towards the portal I was like you, I was in trance and I was like, what is going to happen next? And thinking back about time travel films, that's what I loved about Avengers Endgame so much. And I mean, brilliant ex- execution there. And mind you, that was a much more salient part of more of the film. But yeah, great, right. great illustration. I think we need to talk about this score here by John Williams yes, because yeah. we've alluded to it, but uh, haven't fully explored it. Um highlights and what and maybe in the concert with highlights no pun intended maybe just thinking about the score as a whole what were your reflections you know this one um i didn't have a standout to me and that's actually been the case with later john williams scores um later on in his life i'm so accustomed and used to the big standout theme it's been a lot smaller themes in uh in his later the later end of his career and i think the only really big one that i've i've loved was ray's theme in um star wars and so with this one when i went into it i was i enjoyed the score overall um but there wasn't that big moment for me where i said oh yes this is helena's theme and i'm gonna replay this over and over again like i did ray's theme which even to this day is still one of my favorite i think we talked about it on a previous episode one of my favorite john williams moments of all time which i got to see him play it at the hollywood bowl and the the hairs on my arm were standing straight up and i was like this is perfect um so that i think overall it was very similar to my thoughts on the movie solid overall there. I didn't see anything that was um, drastically um, bad to me, but also I didn't see anything that was spectacularly amazing to me. So it's like right in the middle for me, right, right down the line. Yes. I, uh, I, I do agree that there wasn't a singular moment or theme that perhaps is at the level of race theme in fact i was listening to um uh, a composing podcast um where they were talking about how the force awakens is perhaps one of the greatest scores overall of the past you know decade or so and mm. you know race theme and certainly other characters have significant moments there uh i, I you know i love i love that score as well i thought dial of destiny was overall fantastic Mm. but i don't think there was a singular moment in the film where i'm thinking of the score i remember commenting um when i was seeing it with um when i was seeing the film um with my partner and saying well you know like the score is sounding really great here and like there were several moments where i said that but it's not like I was coming out of the film humming anything other than Mm -hmm. the singular Indiana Jones theme. That said, I've now listened to the soundtrack multiple times 
and found myself loving going back to Helena's theme, which was a you know a leitmotif that was played throughout the film and is nice. I don't think it's as striking as Ray's, but it has a, a you know classic full-on symphony symphonic feel. Um, the action scenes all are very motivating and inspiring. They feel completely perfectly enveloped within the Indiana Jones flavor and vibe. Nothing feels like he's he's trying to go into completely new territory. I think the music really comes alive with some of the uh, kind of globe hopping scenes uh, where you see the mm, map and yes, where he's traveling. Yes, I'm going yes. to play one of them in the background now. This is uh, to Athens. So leading up to that, um, I quite enjoy this kind of motivating, and you'll hear it momentarily. So you hear that echoed throughout the film in terms of da 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 da. da. And they find ways to continue to reinvent that throughout the movie, mm. and. Th that isn't um, Helena's theme. It's more of this like dial theme, so to speak, that uh, at least from from my vantage point that I feel like they're they're able to place throughout and reinterpret a little bit. And it's continually very engaging. But it's not like I walked out of the theater humming it. But now that I've listened to the soundtrack multiple times, that's what stands out to me in terms of mm. memorable yeah, I'm actually now that you bring that up, and I haven't had a chance to listen to it um, from front to back. I've only heard it the one time when I saw the movie. Um, but I think that all of the map scenes and the uh, the car chase scene, those ones I think are the the pieces of the score that stand out in my mind the most. Like I said, the feeling of a, a theme ride, a theme park ride, and just I'm on an adventure. I'm on an action thrill ride. All of those those pieces of music transported me every single time. So, on top of the um, like you said, kind of the the original themes that he had, the light motifs and Marion's theme, the Raiders March, those type of things, bringing those back, um, those were fun for me. But um, overall, it was kind of the transportation music of the car chase and um, the map scenes. Uh, those those pieces I really enjoyed. When you're saying car chase, uh, what it sounds like the ice cream truck might <laughs> be back. <laughs> Different type of car chase, <laughs> chasing the sugar. Um, are you referring to the scene in Tangiers in Morocco with the tuk tuks? Yes. Right. That yes. was that was a nice set piece. Um, and I, I thought that was quite a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah. That that I don't like it felt like it was like an electric vehicle. Um, but the going down the the, um, the alleyways and going um, all the different ways, jumping from from uh, car to car. All of those things were uh, were fun for me. Actually, you know, the, the horseback. Uh, all the stuff that Harrison did on on horseback was also kind of fun for me. So yeah, a lot of chase sequences really stood out to me. Yeah, and that was a little bit of a clip of the tuk tuk scene, um, where you heard that that repeating dial theme, but then it was that um, really heart pounding, like oh my gosh, we're we're after them. But that's you know, very typical. The, yeah, the horseback was that was a nice uh, uh, 
setup that I think really worked out well. <laughs> Pretty cool. Right. Nice old-fashioned stunt work mixed with uh, technology. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I'm a, a huge fan of the, the score overall. Like, I got... So, like, I haven't purchased a, a score in its entirety from, from Apple uh, iTunes in, in a, a little bit while. So this was one that I was really excited to to get on my um in my catalog of, nice. of music and mm. because usually i'm i'm of the mindset like you know there's a couple of tracks that i'll like but i didn't feel like there were any standout tracks from here because i actually as i was listening through it and got ready to purchase it i'm like actually everything's really strong like i think the problem is there's nothing that's at a level 10 of race theme but there's a lot there's lots of sevens and eights and for me, for to have been very consistent on that front, for me, Mark's a really excellent score. Yes. And Helena's theme, which he premiered last year prior to the film's debut, he premiered it, I think, at the Hollywood Bowl in 2022. There was kind of that little preview of ultimately a one that would be echoed throughout the movie. And I'm going to play a little bit of it here. Let me skip a little bit very lush classic John Williams lots of lovely strings but I think one of the, the main issues or considerations one might have is that he he has a kind of a common playbook in terms mm -hmm. of how he you know arranges the music mm -hmm. but so this I mean if you didn't know John Williams full breadth of work would you mix this up with something else but it's but it is very gorgeous and some to think someone's delivering this you know at this point in his career and that you're not finding most hollywood films having this just gorgeous enveloping um symphonic music that's what makes it i think stand out for for someone like me mm. and listening to it it you know it, it this would fit right in with classic disney animation um, I'm thinking like Snow White and, mm. um, you know, that era of Disney animated films. Um, and I think it's it's the time period as well. Like I said, it's kind of taking place in the late 60s. But um, yeah, I think just overall, like I said, solid for me is is the word that I keep thinking of. And it is an achievement that he's doing this at this age and also that He's the only thing, well, him and Harrison Ford are the only things that have lasted from the first Indiana Jones movie all the way to the last Indiana Jones movie. I don't think there'll be any more after this. So I, I think it's a testament to um, him, you know, just his longevity. Yeah, he's the common, th he's the common thread. And actually, I've heard a number of folks say, you know, Star Wars wouldn't have been popular if it hadn't been for John Williams scores. And I think similarly, Indiana Jones scores maybe not to the level of Star Wars because of its breadth and uh, fandom, nonetheless uh, represents one of the strongest pillars of this brand, of this franchise. And you mentioned the future of the franchise, right? So that might be a good way of closing us out and thinking about even just Indiana Jones at the Disney theme parks, which I just want to very quickly touch on. You know, we're, you know, we know that this is the end of Harrison Ford's time in this character. The box office results are unfortunate to say the least. We're recording this um, on July 17th and worldwide gross is 
not even 300 million. We'll see if it gets to perhaps four, if that's even realistic. Probably not. Um, it's been absolutely jarring to see. And, and there have been so many of these illustrations this year with, you know, Little Mermaid doing well, but not well enough by prior standards. And similarly with recent Pixar and Disney Animation Fair, unfortunately. But Indiana Jones is a is a tenpole brand. It's it's next to Star Wars as far as representing what Lucasfilm is all about. This is this is valuable content and it's manifested in the Disney theme parks, as we mentioned, and in other spaces, video games, etc. But what will its next chapter be in light of this flop um, from a financial standpoint? I wouldn't say from a quality standpoint it is, but money talks more than anything. Is is this going to cause them to take a huge step back and even approaching the franchise, much like how Disney is trying to make sense of what Star Wars is in a feature film landscape? Right. Yeah, it just comes kind of at an unfortunate time in the, the film industry. Um, a lot of, you know, strikes that are going on right now and, and a lot of um, pulling back of money of, especially with Disney, pulling back on Marvel and Star Wars and saying, let's focus on quality instead of quantity. So I think Indiana Jones at this stage where it's at, I don't think they're going to put too much, too many resources into it. I think they're going to kind of let it um, live in the background for a little bit. And then I think at some point they're going to re um, reboot it with someone else, a new actor, and maybe even do the young Indiana Jones Chronicles again, do a, a film period or a film series set in his younger days. Um, I think that might be that that seems like the logical move. I, I like that notion too, and I'll take it one step further in that not only would I love Disney and Lucasfilm to revisit how to continue this character beyond Harrison Ford as blasphemous it might as it might be James Bond there are other examples right. I think Indiana Jones has that um vibe where it can be reinvented I and I I know people take umbrage with the character and 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 her performance I actually liked Phoebe Waller-Bridge as Helena like we saw that evolution by the end of the film like she's not the most likable at the beginning but there's still a charisma that is enchanting and just captivating and I think she really delivers in the final act I would say, like, even though they'll never do this, I would love to see her take the mantle five years down the line. They're not mm. going to do it because she's associated with a film that Disney considers a flop. But could it not be, you know, ideally there'd be a protege where someone just takes the mantle. But could it be where, um, you know, a former student or or, or so someone uh, kind of carries that uh, carries that persona? I don't think it's likely, unfortunately, but that would be a, a lovely sentiment. Yeah, I was like you. I didn't have a problem with her performance. And any negativity from me was intentional on the movie's part. She was supposed to be unlikable at the beginning, and she was. There was a lot of things. She, like, she was a jerk to Indy at the beginning. So I think that is an interesting note. And it's the exact same way I felt about Shia LaBeouf's character after Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. There was some talk about him taking over the franchise, but 
like with Dial of Destiny, was considered to be um, critically and I think by audiences as the the least Indiana Jones, you know, the 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 lowest of the movies and and did not kind of keep up the quality level. So I would be interested to see a protege, like you said, um, come along, but I think they're going to do a young indie. I think they're going to do a reboot of the, the main guy. Could also be, you know, this is just not, not even speculative, but more of imaginative. Like, could it not be where like, we find out that Indy has a grandson, like, you know, Mutt has a kid and, and now it's more set in like, I don't know, um, the eighties or, or something like that. And this notion of, of him trying to make sense of his, his familial past mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe he's pursuing a college degree or something. I don't know. I think especially people love the eighties, right? So like, oh yeah, could it not be a, a way of, of envisioning what in what the notion of Indiana Jones is in an early digital age or a, early electronic age, if you will. Yeah, um, I'd like to see that myself. And then we have Indiana Jones in the theme parks. I think it's it's box office fate probably means that there's not going to be a lot of interest in bringing further further indie to the parks. But um, stateside, we have. The Indiana Jones stunt, epic stunt spectacular at Disney's Hollywood Studios at Walt Disney World. There's the Indiana Jones adventure uh, attraction at Disneyland in California. Internationally, there's inter- there's indie presence. There's a coaster at Disneyland Paris uh, that uh, Matt rode when we were there. I did not um, because uh, it seemed a bit too rough for me. And then there's also a version of the Indiana Jones adventure out in Tokyo, uh, Tokyo Disney Sea, but I think the hopes for more indie content in the parks is is limited by um, the lack of consumer interest for this film. But I, I think uh, perhaps we just need to show continue to show our enthusiasm for making those queue lines long, uh, I, or or purchasing further indie merchandise if if Disney can deliver on that front. Purchase the Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny soundtrack, uh, which is available on iTunes starting in August. You can buy it as an LP uh, vinyl records, uh, two-disc two set, and also uh, on CD. So those are small ways in which I guess we can show support for the, the music uh, media. But um, yeah, I guess it, it seems like Indy's not going to have as much of a presence in the short term, but it doesn't mean it can't be reinvented or uh, revisited. Right. And it's a shame because um, the Indiana Jones adventure was one of my favorite rides growing up. And um, it has a lot of echoes in my current favorite ride of all time, which is um, uh, rise of the resistance. So that type of moving track car um, I've always been, actually, that was the very first one. The Indiana Jones adventure was the first one that I was like, I love this type of ride. I want more of this. So I wish they would have kind of continued that and almost like the star tours model of changing it up every couple of years and being a different adventure. Um, so that was uh, a lost thing. And then the great movie ride, which they don't have anymore, but they had a Indiana Jones, a Raiders of the Lost Ark sequence on there. So yeah, there's a ton of um, kind of footprint. Uh, uh, media footprint of Indiana Jones and um, different video, like you said, video games, um, 
theme parks and, and all these things, toys. And hopefully they can kind of just continue with that. Um, give it a little time to cool down and then bring it back again. And our Lego Indiana Jones sets oh, yes. that are incredible. Yes. So yes. people can show their fervor that way too. <laughs> yeah. Trent, it's been a pleasure to talk with you about all this Indiana Jones style Destiny content, but I want to make sure we conclude with you sharing exactly how listeners can follow your podcast, your work, and your presence on social media. Yes, thank you very much for having me again. Uh, you can actually find me on YouTube. That's probably the best way, youtube.com slash Vactor. I've got the Vactorverse uh, YouTube channel and podcast, and um, there's just a ton of different um, interviews and videos that I'm putting out. I'm do- putting out daily shorts of different comic book characters, biographies, and Star Wars. Um, we have the Ahsoka show coming up. So I'm going to have a lot of content leading up to, and then once the show is out, I'm going to be doing reviews of every episode. So stay tuned, youtube.com slash Vactor, V-A-C-T-O-R. Fantastic. Trent, always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Brett. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Notably Disney and have an opportunity to check out Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny if you have not already. Certainly check out the Vactorverse of content. Uh, It's uh, perhaps not as complex uh, and dizzying as the multiverse, but nonetheless, Trent has a lot of really uh, critical and thoughtful content on everything comic books and more within his YouTube channel and the podcasts that are associated uh, with him as well. So definitely be sure to take take a look there and uh, thanks for listening. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at Reports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N Reports and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to NotablyDisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.